Well, let's get started this morning and uh, get, jump right in. Um, actually, uh, let me let me speak really quickly. Um, just some updates. Give everyone some updates on on everything that's happening and everything that's that's going on. Um, uh, let's see here. So, uh, Christina and I, we've we've already gotten a uh, uh, we've finally gotten a closing date for our house. So. Uh, by by God's yeah exactly praise God right praise God that's right um, amen for that and, and so that that date is actually February first so um, coming that that uh, not this Monday which I wish it was this coming Monday but it's actually not till the to the following week um, so thank you for your prayers and that and continue to pray for us as we uh, make that next step and get settled and 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 such so we're we're all really excited about that. Um, second thing is in, in light of what, uh, what we are doing uh, as, a, as a church plant, um, we are uh, working steadily toward, toward, uh, to the next steps and what it means to be, to be a church. And one of our next steps that we'll be taking next month, um, and I don't even mind giving you a date, it's going to be the third week of February, um, we're going to join into covenant with one another. Um, at the beginning of the month, we'll actually give you that covenant and what that covenant looks like and so that you could um, review it, pray over it. If you have questions, you, you're more welcome to, to address us and ask us what, what particular things mean and how that will actually work out. Um, and we look forward to exp- telling you all what that actually means. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious. I mean, if you, uh, when you get married, uh, you, you're joining in covenant with, uh, with your spouse, Right. And what does that mean? It means you, you say those vows, right? You remember the vows that you said years and years ago for some of us? Um, those, those vows have a meaning, right? Of the, this is what it means for me to be devoted to, to you. And, and that's what that is. It's a, it's a covenant to, to one another. And, and it's something we're, we're really excited about. Um, and it makes, uh, it makes that, I think, our community tighter. Uh, it makes it uh, meaningful. Um, and, and such. So it's something we're, we're already really excited about. And I think once you, you see that and, and see how we go through it, that uh, you'll, you'll be very pleased and very happy uh, knowing that those who you join with every, every week um, and all week long um, are, are those who have made the same commitments that you have um, uh, to, to, the, to the Word of God um, and to, to one another, to the gospel, to, to the evangelism, to, to missions, to, to all of that um, as, as the Lord continues to unite us together. So um, please continue to pray for us and, and pray for the work as the Lord continues to uh, work uh, in, in, in our midst. Um, and so, so know that we are we're taking the next steps, and we're really excited. I, th- I think it's the 22nd. Is that right? Is that that third week in, in February? That's gonna be a, that'll be a, a joyous time, a great Sunday um, that day. All right, so, so that's the... What's that? 21st. A 21st. Okay, 22nd is a Monday. You're what? She's correcting me? Oh, you. In lieu of, okay. Yeah, yeah, you're just the middleman. It's actually the 21st. Thank you, Diane. All right, so let's, let's now dive back in. So transition time. Let's dive now into, our, um, into our, what we're going to be talking about um, this morning. So we've, we've started Ephesians, and we've been unpacking uh, quite a few details in, in just the first few verses or first I mean, verses, first phrases in uh, in Ephesians, and we've been unpacking the the deep purposes that God has for His people, um, and the deep purposes that God has done and brought about through His Son uh, Jesus Christ. Um, one of the perspectives that we we explored last last week was the was the incredible, amazing. Um, perspective of, of God to man, right? The, the great lens of, by which God is, is looking toward us and, and what it means, what he has done in eternity's past to the glory of his name and to bring about salvation of his people. We, we, we started looking at that and we'll, we'll actually unpack a whole lot more of that when we get through Ephesians 1-2 uh, together. 
So we've been, we've been exploring these great themes. Last week we talked about the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the mystery of God, the grace of God, the Son of God, the purpose of God. week before that we talked about what does it mean to be in Christ, seeing the overarching theme of, of, of Ephesians and exploring these other great themes is to press us and pursue us to, so that we would be seeing our new identity as being in Christ and in particular also for the church in Ephesus as well as the church today of exchanging our idols from ourselves, the idols of self, and to identify with Christ. So let's look at our passage this morning, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump right in. We won't spend too much time uh, going back over what we've already done, just because there's a, there was a lot there, and you can go online and listen to it if you'd like. Ephesians 1, read with me there, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Up until I was about six years old, um, I used to, I would go to the church with my mom. I lived with my mom. Um, my mom is from Holland. She was born in Holland. And uh, because of that, you know, she grew up uh, in the part in the time of Europe when it was uh, massively Catholic. And so I, I grew up to about six years old or so going uh, regularly to, I think it was, um, what was the name of that church? I can't remember anymore. Uh, the, to the Catholic Church in Palm Bay. It was a big one. And I remember going every single week. Uh, we would get up, we would drive and, and, and head that direction. Um, and... As a kid, I was bored out of my mind, just to be honest with you. Um, but we would go to church. And so the, the, the process there of, of being a, a Catholic was very interesting to me. Um, and I never really understood, but that was what I did. That's what we, that's what we did. Um, and because of that, it, it, it had some, some good shaping for me, and it also had some negative shaping for me. Uh, good shaping for me, it, I always had a, 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 a presupposition in my life that God existed. There, there, there is a God, right? I knew that, and that was a good one. But there was also some negative things, uh, such as how the, how the churches ran and what they did. Um, and, and one of the big ones is one of the things we're going to talk about today, and, and that is what a saint is. And, and I grew up uh, uh, with the understanding or an idea, at least until I was six years old, right, um, is, is what a saint was, was a, was a very special, like, superhero Christian, Right? And legitimately, superhero. We're not talking, uh, we're not, I'm not just using that facetiously. I, I think that's, what, that's the end of what Catholicism believes a saint is. And so the process of becoming a saint, right? I've looked this up. The process of becoming a saint is very interesting to the, to, to the Catholic Church. Is Number one, you have to be a Catholic. So that means none of us in here can be a saint. Okay? Uh, we've, we've, some of us were, so we've foregone that. But being Baptist, automatically you're, you're already off the list, so don't ask the Pope to make you a saint. Uh, second thing is you have to die, right? You have to die. So, um, yeah, you're not going to be a saint because you're still alive. Uh, number three, after you die, there has to be a, uh, a, a local devotion that grows in your memory, right? So if you did something and there's, you have followers, you have disciples, you have people who follow you in, in your memory, right? That, that, that helps uh, in your, your sainthood. After that starts to stir and take place, number four, the, the church, the, the local area, right, of the Catholic Church will begin to investigate your life, right? Why are people still following this person? What makes this person unique? What, what did they do, right? And so if after that point, if you pass that, that test, the, the fifth one is, is then that, that local bishop who, who did the investigating of, of you uh, then will send your case to the Vatican, right? And then at that point, the Vatican will go over that case, right? And they'll look at that and they'll analyze it. Um, and then at that point, truthfully, what happens is, is the people who are following, they pray for a miracle, Literally, you pray for a miracle because these things are happening all over the world, right? These, these cases are always being sent in. You pray for a miracle. The Vatican then investigates the, the miracles as well. And then the Vatican, also known as the Pope, right? You have the Pope then. 
is the one who has to declare that person as blessed and then makes that person the saint. So that's pretty foreign for most of us, right? We're like, what in the world did you just, what in the world did you just say? Um, it's funny, I put a note here because something I read was that the process of becoming a saint, the whole process, cost the church about a million dollars. A million bucks, right, to make, to make someone a, a saint uh, for, the, for the Catholic church. But, but we're, not, we're not Catholics. So, so our, our thoughts of, of what a saint is is not the same as what, what they would consider a, a saint. And like I said earlier, the way I thought it was, and, and maybe you think most of us, is we, we believe that they're, they're somewhat of a, a superhero or someone who has uh, special spiritual powers to live a, uh, an extraordinary life, right? Maybe in a, a Jesus sort of way mixed in with like an X-Man or something like that, right? That's what we think a... a uh, uh, a superhero or a, a saint looks like, or or Mother Teresa comes to mind, right? Uh, I think that was a pretty easy case for them uh, to to make her a saint. Uh, and and it is the it is a position though that is given. It's a title that is declared upon a person. And and yet when we think about the process of what we just talked about, what how does how do they become a saint in Catholicism? And then what we believe about a saint being like this superhero uh, uh, follower of of Christ. We, we see that as something very unattainable. We see it as something as so unattainable that, that we only use the word saint as a, a supplurative in our culture, right? Meaning we, we only call that the someone. When we see someone who is of, of, of great uh, sacrifice, someone who does great sacrifice, or someone who, is great, uh, who gives great service, or someone who, who gives greatly, right? We look at that person and we're like, man, that person must be a saint. Right? It's just, it's just a superlative in our, in our culture. The problem, though, the problem with, the, with the, the Catholic teaching and the problem with our perception of what a saint is, the problem is, is neither of them are biblical. Neither of them are biblical. This is what I believe is one of the most forgotten and the most neglected areas of God's grace to us as a church and as a people. This is one of the most neglected areas of, of God's grace. Right? It's, this, is, this is an idea that's hardly taught by the church anymore. It's hardly told anymore when a person becomes a believer in Christ. Right? We've, 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 we've uh, all, all by and just forfeited completely the term saint to the Catholic Church. Right? We just kind of leave that to them, and, and we only read it in passing when it's in the text. But by abandoning this word, by abandoning this world, we have lost great meaning in our identity, in our identity with, with Christ. We've also abandoned it, not just by giving it completely to the, to the Catholics, but we've also abandoned it completely by, by losing what it actually means. Because we've embraced a, 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 we embraced a man-centered theology that looks more like a moral therapeutic deism. What can I get out of this? What can God give me? idea and approach. And so to, to be a saint is neglected. This grace is so neglected. As it's defined in Scripture, why do we need grace? It's because it is God's unmerited favor. And the consequences of, of neglecting this unmerited favor of God for the church and for families and for Christians throughout the ages has been catastrophic. Have been catastrophic. It's been, a, it's been a fade that's been slow. It's been a fade that's been subtle. But it has had massive consequences. There, the, the division of God's grace. There, there's, I, I'm, I'm utterly convinced of it. There's nothing more divisive about the, the Christian faith as given by the Scripture than God's grace. There's, there's nothing more you will be hated more in our culture, in a Bible Belt culture, than one who believes in God's unmerited favor of grace towards you. So it's God's grace that we want to highlight. It's God's grace that we want to hold up. It is by God's grace that we are separate and we have been separated. And it's God's grace that, that shapes everything. It is everything. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Because it is by His grace and by His grace alone that we have been saved. Grace is not just a side note. 
Grace isn't just something that we, we throw in when we want to speak Christian. Uh, grace is not just a side note or a passing note. Grace is the key to the song of the gospel that we are to sing. Grace is that key. So the term that is often ignored, this idea of being a saint and being called a saint by God's grace is what we're going to highlight tonight, today. Because this is what Paul does for us in the very beginning what seems very small, like a passing word in just the greeting, and maybe the titles, the subtitles and in, in the, in the, the uh, editors gave us in our scriptures are kind of let us walk right by them like as if they're passing words, but they have such deep meaning. The deep meaning there of the great theme in Ephesians, if we're going to find our identity, and the identity is that I am in Christ because he has called me a saint. He has called me a saint. We we read it this morning in Hebrews 10 that we have been perfected, called saints. So I'm a saint. I am a saint. Who are the saints then? Who are the saints? Who is he talking about? Who, who, who is he talking about? Well, if you look at the passage, they are the ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Right? They are the ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints are anyone who is in Christ and anyone who is in Christ, they are faithful. The faithful are in Christ Jesus. If they are not faithful, they are not in Christ. Let us not believe the idea that if one person prays a prayer and then their life looks nothing in regeneration of faith in Christ, that they are a Christian. We go by the evidence and the marks by what the Scripture has given us, and that is those who have been transformed by Christ Jesus, the saints, they are marked by faithfulness. Faithfulness. Marked by faithfulness. The saints are anyone who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is intentional in using this term here. And it's a word and it's a term that I want us to redeem this morning. Use it for ourselves. Reclaim it. It's ours. It's our term. Paul's intentionally using it, and he's using it as an adjective to describe those who are a part of the church, the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. The faithful who are in Christ Jesus. And it's absolutely necessary for us to grasp this, right? Because the Bible is written by God to Christians. To Christians. Paul was addressing the church. Paul was addressing Christians. Paul was addressing the saints who are in Christ. He was not writing to the whole city of Ephesus. He wasn't writing it for Statesboro. He wasn't writing it for America. It transcends all of that. He wrote it for the church. He wrote it to the people of God. To the church. 61 times. Hear me on this. 61 times in the New Testament, this word, saints, is being used to describe those who are Christians and those who are a part of the church. To the saints, to the church, those who are in Christ Jesus. I also got to dispel this idea because it's something that we also see is so predominant in our culture is that he is not talking to just random people all over the place in Ephesus who call themselves Christians. He's talking to the church, a local body. A local gathered body. Not just individuals that meet here and meet there. Those who are part of parachurch group ministries. He's not talking about this. He's talking to the church. He's talking to you and he's talking to us. Together. To the church. To the saints. We see later on in, in, in chapter 1 to the elect, to those who have been adopted before the foundation of the world. So in, so in all of this, hear me on this, is that, that when he calls you a saint, when he calls the church and those who are in Christ Jesus a saint, he's not talking to some special class of special operations Christians. Like those who go on the mission field, those are the saints. He's not talking about that. This isn't a, a new special category of Christian, but he is talking to everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Even to the first Corinthian church, or even to the church in Corinthians and first, uh, our first Corinthians, Paul addresses the church as the saints. To the saints. 
called to be saints together with all of those who are in every place called upon in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to both their Lord and ours. He calls one of the, the most messed up churches in all the New Testament. They, they messed up the Lord's Supper. They, they, they messed up spiritual gifts. They have pervasive, open sin and that they tolerated, and yet Paul calls them saints. Paul calls them saints. And the saints are those who God has given grace and peace. You see that in verse 2. He is, the ones, he is the one who has given us grace, and he is the one who has given us peace. Once again, this grace is the unmerited favor of God toward a needy people. To those who are in the church, he has given us grace. Go with me real quick in Ephesians 2. Not to, not to jump ahead too far, but look at Ephesians 2 with me. Let me show you this. Starting in verse 1. It says, and you, were, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying up the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. Hear this church, hear this people. This is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here is grace. There's the details of God's grace there. The great details of how God acted and God moved, working out, bringing about what He had planned and predestined and foreknew since eternity. And Ephesians 2 is that plan set in motion. And He's reminding all of us that you were once this, this people, this is who you were. But God, not anymore. Because of God's grace. Because of God's grace toward us. So there it is, answering the question, who are the saints? The saints are the church. To anyone who are in, is in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. You are a saint. Number two, what does it mean to be a saint? What does it mean? Well, let's, let's define it. The, the Greek word that, that's being used here is hagios. And, and in this word, it, it, it is almost a, uh, um, it is it is almost the exact same word as holy, but it's being used as an adjective to describe the people. So when we say that you're a saint, it is a description of the your holiness. It is a description of 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 your holiness. And as we've seen, right, by God's grace, by God's grace, God has made us holy. It's, it's still just mind-boggling to me that when he read Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, thinking that this is what we're going to be talking about today, and, and look what, it, what it's saying. There's nothing else that will make you perfect, but God has provided through Christ to make you perfect. And when he is calling us a saint, when he's declaring upon you holiness, that you are holy, he is saying you are perfect in my sight. None of us would consider ourselves perfect, would we? But when God looks at us through the lenses of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I'm getting ahead here, because it just sounds like it works. 
But when he looks through the lenses of Christ's righteousness placed upon you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. He sees the righteousness of his son. He sees the perfect sacrifice and atonement of his son. And that righteousness that has been imputed upon you by God's grace. Does this word, hagios, saints, holy, now, is placed upon us, the saints, those who are in Christ. So understand this, that being a saint means, means nothing to do with all the wonderful things that you can do. It has nothing to do with, with all of the horrible things you might have done. Or the sinful thoughts that you might have had. But the only requirement, the only requirement of being called a saint is the ones who are covered by God's grace. And it's the free, unmerited favor of God. He freely gives. So here we have here, just a massive, massive part right here in the first two verses of Ephesians 1. This identity change that we're no longer to be considered ourselves sinners, but that we're saints. That we're saints. How? How? How does that happen? So we, we understand that we're sinners. We, we get that. We, under, we understand that we're sinners. I, I, maybe we don't get that. That's something we'll, we'll get to when we actually get to Ephesians 2. We will, we will pack that home. We will make it clear that this is who you once were. We are sinners, but we are also saved by God's grace. And by the saved by God's grace is now our new identity. Not sinner. Not sinner. How is this, how is this identity that work out? Romans 3. How did that happen? Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Right? There it is. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, faith in Jesus. So this is what we, what we are saying here. Is yes, we are sinners, but we are all by more saved by God's grace. Christ did not pay eternal debt of God's wrath towards sinners and then to impute His righteousness upon you so that you can still walk around and identify as a sinner. Did you catch that? Christ did not pay the debt of God's wrath toward sin and towards sinners, so that those who are of the elect could walk around, who have been imputed God's Christ's righteousness, could walk around and say, I'm still a sinner, and totally neglect the idea of being called a saint. No, you are a saint. So there still is a tension here, and I think you all feel that. You're describing all this good and, and, and what I should be thinking as my identity being made holy, being a saint. These are big terms that just does not translate to my life. It doesn't make sense. They don't, they don't add up because I'm not one of those that can kind of put away that stuff and pretend. So there's a tension. There is a tension in the text. It makes sense. Because if I'm a saint... If I'm a saint, if I've been made holy by God, if I've been imputed the righteousness of Christ in such a way, and I'm supposed to think of myself more of a saint than, than I am a sinner, then what in the world am I going to do with these urges of sin and these desires of sin and these temptations to sin? What do I do with those? Well, that brings us to point three. How do we then relate sin and saints? Mankind is sinful. 
We read it right there in Ephesians 2, that from, from birth, by nature, we are sinners. And it goes as, as far as to say that we are children of wrath. That we are children of wrath. And outside of Christ and by his, uh, outside of that grace, we are eternally helpless and hopeless and separated from our Creator. Doomed to face God's eternal wrath. So we are, we are totally depraved. Unable. Unable to, to cleanse ourselves. Unable to, to fulfill the law in of ourselves and our own righteousness. And every bit of this, this depravity affects our, our personhood. It affects our minds. It affects our wills. It affects our, um, all of our emotions outside of Christ. It affects all. It has tainted and stained every part by our nature from conception, the sin of Adam is passed down. And all of its effects makes us slaves and makes us blind to sin. Slaves and blind to sin. But if we are in Christ, but if we are in, in Christ, what happens to that nature? What happens to that, to that nature, even though we're being called a saint? What, what happens to it? If, if it, it, it changes. The nature doesn't go away. We feel that. The nature, the nature is still there. The desires, the, the, uh, the, the fears, the anxieties, the emotions are all there. They don't get removed just like that. But what is removed is the bondage. Must be Lydia. Come on in, Lydia. Or it's the Holy Spirit. Come on in, Holy Spirit. I'm just kidding. But what is removed is the bondage. The bondage to those things. Therefore, the desires completely shift and they completely change. This, this will, this will that was once in bondage to sin is now free. Is, is now been set free. And what I think is really awesome and just kind of an implication of that, that when our will is really free in Christ, that that's when we are free to serve one another. That's when we're, we're free to be able to, to meet one another's needs. We're, we're free to be in community with one another and be in each other's lives and, and, and show one another evidences of grace, but also then be able to call out sin, knowing that my brother or my sister who calls those things out is doing so as one who has been saved by grace. Our wills have changed. And that frees us to serve others. So our, our, our identity, if it is in Christ, is no longer as sinner, as wicked. What you do, what you think, maybe the way you act is sinful, and it can be wicked, but as a saint in Christ, that is our identity. That is the adjective by which God looks at you and us as a saint. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn there and, and, and pull your pen out, pull your highlighter out and highlight this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Fantastic chapter, but I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, but the new has come. The old has passed away and the new has come. And once again, there's a tension there. We're like, I don't feel it. I don't, I don't feel new. I still feel like old. I feel, still feel like that these things are still so rampant in me. Well, here's what he means. I, I believe that, that, that there is a day when there will be a totality of newness, right? I don't know if that's a real word or not, but, but there will be, everything will be made new. 
All things will, will come to light. All things will be made new. But in what we see in this text, when Christ has worked in the life of the believer, like I said, he frees us from the bondage. The desires may be strong, but yet we do not have to sin. But what he does here is it, it doesn't necessarily not, it doesn't yet make us totally new, but it makes us genuinely new. Not totally new, but genuinely new. And, and this explains why we're not totally not without sin, right? This, this is why it explains why we are not without sin completely. Because being a saint, biblically, means that you're still going to sin. You're, you're still going to sin. But sin is just this occasional activity that happens when we're not focused on the things that are above. Colossians 3. Put your mind, put your focus on the things above. Meaning, our focus on Christ and what He thinks about us. That is when sin takes place. Nobody is indulging in sin while singing, All I have is Christ. Nobody is in, indulging in, in anxiety and fear when they're reading Romans 8. You're not. When is it? When we're not on those things. When we're not setting our mind on those things. When we're not setting our mind on what God thinks of us. And He has made us genuinely new. So there's a vital difference between having sin and being sin. Did you know that the Bible rarely describes a Christian as a sinner? Rarely. Does it ever describe a Christian as a sinner? As opposed to how it describes non-Christians about 300 times to be sinners. The Bible describes Christians as holy, as saints, as righteous over 200 times. Not because intrinsically or naturally something in of yourself makes you awesome and superhero-like, but because of Christ's righteousness. Paul had a profound, a profound understanding which he, by God's Holy Spirit, gave to us. This profound understanding of this identity of being in Christ. But in Christ, he has given us his righteousness. The great exchange, right? Moving on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 comes verse 21, one we're familiar with. For our sake he, be, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This great exchange that has taken place by God's grace on our behalf. So sin, sin explains our activity, but sin is not, and sin does not define your identity. It explains our identity, our activity, but it does not define our identity. If our identity is in Christ, by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit's power, our activity then be changes. Our desires and our affections change from a lesser thing of sin to a lesser thi- from a lesser thing of, of idolatry and selfishness, living for yourself, but then changes to, to be satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. If our position then has changed, from sinner to saint, then how we live changes practically by the Holy Spirit daily. If, you're, if the, your daily walk is, 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 is marked by being called a saint, by God, that changes everything. That changes by the way you respond to temptation and sin and desires and sinful desires and nature that's still there. It changes. It shifts So there's three marks, three marks of a saint in response to their sin. Three marks. First mark is there's remorse. First mark is remorse, right? Everyone at some time, we've all felt remorse about uh, uh, something, and some of us carry it longer than we should. If all of our life, all of a sudden, to every one of us became known, every bit of it, every thought, every action, every desire, good and bad, became known to, to all of us, there would be a lot of remorse. <laughs> there would be a lot of more remorse. There would be a lot of shame. There would be a lot of guilt. Yet the, the, the saint, in relationship with Jesus, even though we feel the remorse of sin and our actions of sin, 
It doesn't lead us away from Christ. The saint runs to Christ. Because the holiness doesn't exist in of themselves. The holiness exists in the Lord and Christ. Therefore, we run to Him. We run to Him. Yes, it causes us to, to, to see sin more clearly. It see, helps us to, to grieve sin more deeply, as we should. As we should. But remorse is a good thing. Running from it is not. The psalmist, Psalm 32, remorse. Read Psalm 32 sometime. Go to Psalm 53, remorse. Remorse is, is a conviction over sin. Is a conviction over sin, a sin that does not uh, uh, um, doesn't that doesn't leave us in dismay or or despair. I mean, conviction that doesn't leave us in despair or or, or leave us in dismay, but it drives us to confess. It drives us to 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 repent of our sin, because we know the one who forgives us, and that is Christ. One of the things that we believe so often is that when we are convicted of our sin, it's leading us to condemnation. It's leading us to condemnation, but conviction by the Holy Spirit is the exact opposite. Conviction upon the, from the Holy Spirit is not condemning you. It's not condemning you. It's a conviction that, that leads us back to life. It's a, it's a conviction that, that leads us to joy. It's a co- conviction that, that leads us to want to change, which means to, to repent, to turn around. It's the, it's the conviction that, that leads to that identity be, be, be stronger in Christ. It's a conviction that then becomes, a, a, that, that, that grows a more of a, an awareness of our sin. We become more aware of our sin. It's a conviction that, that presses upon us a dependence for the Holy Spirit. And it gives us a deeper desire for the Word of God. So it's not condemnation. Conviction is a good thing. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, brother and sister, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Don't run. Don't act as one who has been condemned. The one who has been condemned, condemnation is from Satan. Con- condemnation and from if the believer feels condemnation, that is from Satan. That leads to despair. That leads to running. That, that only ends in sorrow. That only makes you believe that you can't change. That's what makes you believe. It makes you hold on to that old identity of being a, of a sinner. It makes you look at yourself more than looking at the Savior. When we are convicted of sin, it drives us to the Lord drives to the Holy to Christ and what He has done. We're not under condemnation. If you are in Christ, you are not under condemnation. Romans 8, Therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if there's a lack of remorse over your sin, I've said this over the last couple of weeks, I think. If there's a lack of remorse of your sin, if your heart is hard towards sin, like you don't even recognize it, Something's gone wrong. Something, something's shifted that hadn't, shouldn't have shifted. Or maybe you've believed something, like I've said at the very beginning, what, what church culture teaches these days and has never taught you what it means to be a saint in Christ. And you've looked more for your, inner, your own inner strength than your strength by the Holy Spirit and what He has given you. You've never considered yourself to be a saint, but you've looked more toward yourself. So the first mark is remorse. The second mark is there is a position that we have been given. And this position is what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, and that is to be in Christ. To be in Christ. So how do we, how do we uh, deal with sin? How do we fight sin? How do we fight sin's temptation? By remembering the position that God has given you. And that is as, as a saint. As a saint. We remember our identity. And in that remembering of our identity as a saint, as when it's holy, we do not give in to sin. We say no to sin. Saints, in Christ, we have peace. We have grace from God the Father who's given us all these things. A couple, a couple of things that we believe about sin and temptation it's just because you're, you're, you're tempted with sin doesn't mean you're guilty of sin. Remember that? Don't believe that. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you're guilty. 
That's a lie. That's a lie. Also, don't believe that if you're tempted that you should just give in. That's a lie. Jesus knew his identity. And I believe because Jesus knew his identity as the Son of God, when he was tempted and he was scorned and he was beaten and he was killed, he knew his identity as the Son of God. And in knowing his identity, I believe that's why he endured what he endured. How do we endure what we are supposed to and called to endure? Sin, temptation, suffering, persecution, whatever it may come. How do we endure? Because we remember who and what God has called us. Holy, perfect, saints, righteous. Third mark is humility. And this is my last one. Humility. Because we've been called that, saints, by God, there's a humility there. Because we know the, the process of salvation had reality, nothing to do with us. We brought, we brought nothing to the table. You didn't exchange anything. Christ exchanged on your behalf. So in this new humility of being called a saint, not, not because you're awesome, but because Christ is. There's this newfound humility. And in that humility, there is an absolute deep dependence upon the Holy Spirit, a deep dependence upon the Lord. If you're not depending upon the Holy Spirit, if you're not depending upon the Lord, if you're not pressing into the Word of God, then your ability to fight temptation will only go as far as you can have, as, as far as you have the strength to stand. And if you're anything like me, the strength to stand by my own power and by my own will does not last long. But if our dependence and your dependence is a humility on the Holy Spirit and in Christ, and you cry out to Him in them times of need, times of temptation, He is faithful. He will uphold you. There's no room for pride. There's no room for being puffed up. The prideful, the boastful, do not know grace. Do not know grace. The unrepentant do not know grace. Humility. We are growing into humility. As saints, you are growing into humility as you identify more and more in Christ. The humility grows, keeping us in grace. This, this simple little word, the simple little word at the beginning of Ephesians, maybe I, maybe I beat it to death there. This simple little word, it reveals so much, doesn't it? It reveals so much as our identity. It reveals so much of who we are in Christ. That if you are in Christ, then you are a saint. Can, can you feel the weight of that? Can, can you feel the, the weight of God, that? Have, have, you ever, have you ever heard that? To be called a saint? Do you feel the depth of God's grace in that position of being called a saint? It, it shifts things. It changes things. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about being centered on me. But it's about being centered on God. And I think this is what's going to set us up. When we, when we look at that lens, like I told you all in the beginning, that lens, that perspective of God to man, when we un, start to unpack that next week, if we keep this perspective of humility, it's going to help us. It's nothing of us. It's not of us but of him. Do we see, do we hear on how God thinks of you? A saint. I wrote down here to read Romans 7, going through Romans 8 a little bit, but I wanted to hold off, and y'all can look that up later. But Paul in chapter 7 is recounting his sinfulness he feels that tension. He, he basically states that tension. The tension of, oh, I'm still 
weighed down by so much temptation. The desires to sin are so there. But he, he rejoices. He rejoices in the end because what it is is he has an absolute deep thankfulness to God. He says, but thanks be to God. But thanks be to God. Because he is resting in what God has called him and what God has made him. And my hope and prayer is not for you to just to give in because this is what God has done. But my hope and prayer that, that that now gives us something to stand in. It gives us a place now that we can, we can stand in a position of being called by God a saint. It gives you something to hold on to when we face temptation today and this week. Now, later on in the text, when it call, says to put on the full armor, what it means, you're putting on the armor because you're a saint. Brother and sister, this is good for us to hear. And I pray that it is encouraging. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us and for us, revealed to us. And I pray now that as we respond together, you would give us the words to say, words of encouragement to one another, words of confession if needed, words of delight in Christ and in the gospel, words of rejoicing in the work that only you can accomplish. Thank you for, for that sacrifice, God. There's, there's no words that, that can express our thankfulness and joy and gratification for the, for the atonement and the redemption that you have given to us in Christ. And yet, Lord, you have bestowed upon us immeasurable grace and riches. Thank you for your words, and I pray that and as we walk this, this week in faith, and we remember our identity and our position as saints, I have faith in Christ Jesus, and grace and peace.